1: This is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host Brian Fromm. We are so thrilled that you are with us on this Monday evening. Brian, I told you over the weekend I was part of an event at Wheaton College called Ordinary Discipleship. Where we talked with a group of pastors uh, from the area, also from Indiana as well, okay. about like what makes a good disciple and what makes a good disciple maker.
2: Who put this on? Wheaton?
1: Uh, well, Wheaton put it on. Or was it just on, at Wheaton? No, Wheaton put it on. Their Send Institute the Billy Graham Center put it on alongside an author named Jesse Crookshank. She's been on the oh, show while. Oh, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Her book is Ordinary Discipleship. So I got to participate in it. And uh, Jesse asked that question to all the pastors. What makes a good disciple? Hmm. What makes a good disciple maker? What are your thoughts on that?
2: It's a hard question. Yeah,
1: I thought it was a hard question too.
2: So, what makes a good disciple uh, is obedience. Okay. Uh, focus. Okay. Like kind of a focus on Jesus, not yeah. like a I'm focused yeah, on yeah, yeah, like yeah. A focus on Jesus. Um, what makes a good disciple maker? Hmm. Um. I would say. Um, there's a knowledge aspect, but there's also a, 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 a passion mm, for disciple making. Mm. Um, yeah, that's a hard question. That's very open-ended. This, she
1: also asked this question. Why might someone not be a good disciple maker?
2: Uh, they have no confidence that they can be.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. I
2: would also suggest, uh, apathy and lack of caring mm-hmm. would also be like, why would I care if I'm a disciple? Whatever. Right. So I would why think. Why does it matter? Those, yeah.
1: Okay. So here's some of the things Jesse did eventually end up answering those questions. Here's some of the things she talked about. She's a, uh, she's like a brain scientist or something. Oh, I remember, remember that. that. Yeah. She's like a now I remember we Yep. Okay, but she actually she talked a little bit about mission drifts throughout history and okay. why discipleship has become the way that it is, which is a little nebulous. A little of us just trying to figure out what is this thing yeah. supposed to be doing, yeah. and also kind of centered on discipleship. Disciple-making equals I'm imparting knowledge to you, meaning you need to become a New Testament scholar. Mm. That's a little exaggerated, yep, but yep, you yep. know what I mean? Okay, so she says this. When disciple-making began, of course, Jesus, right, calling us. She was like, the correct. one job we have to make disciples. She said that it was a group project. The goal of the New Testament was not to become a New Testament scholar. And she was like, newsflash, the New Testament did not exist yet. There you go. Uh, She said, but it was union with God. And discipleship happened through apprenticeship. Like we see that with Jesus. And even apprenticeship in like carpentry and other Mm -hmm. things. It happened in community and was all about union with God. Okay, So that was Jesus's version of disciple making. But she said we had the first major mission drift, which was in the third century with Constantine. Oh, I knew who that's where we're going. Right. The first emperor to convert to Christianity, at least, you know, Became the
2: state religion. Yes. Yep.
1: He professionalized disciple making. So the state now uh, decides what is to be taught. You've got experts and it is. Um, yeah. The state kind of takes over and it's no longer community based. She said there was still like enchantment and mystery and magic in that time of our history. Okay. But this was the next mission drift that there was a loss of enchantment. God became a measuring God. If Mm. it cannot be measured, this is the enlightenment in the 16th century. If it cannot be measured, it must not exist. God became rationalized. Scripture became rationalized. And therefore, our discipleship became rationalized, rationalized and measured. Yeah. If it isn't measured, it's not working. That's okay? true. Yes. She talks a lot about that. So the highest good is no longer the union with God, but it is the mind of man mm, during the Enlightenment. Interesting. Yep. Then she said another mission drift was the remon- the Reformation. This is okay. kind of interesting, which actually sermonized disciple making, meaning the Reformation, in as good as it was trying to do, began to set apart disciple making okay. for those who were leaders, highly educated, ah. professionals. Really good speakers. Mm. She said, that's where we we began to get that idea in the evangelical church that what qualifies someone to make a disciple is if they're really educated in the Bible and and they're really good speakers. Okay. Then she talks about another major mission drift being in the 19th century, the Industrial Revolution when you know think about the invention of the factory and henry ford Mm -hmm. and some good things of course but that we were creating a product and everyone the end result of that product should be the same so like she said this is where we get our classroom education system why all first graders do the same thing all the second graders all the third Mm -hmm. graders the idea is we want like a quote norm and all of us to reach that norm. So the Industrial Revolution systematized disciple-making to make it about reaching a certain product. Then she said the fifth major movement really is the evangelical movement, which individualized it or privatized it, where only the best, only the talented are called. And it's like an individual thing. It's no longer the community. That's interesting.
2: That's interesting. So
1: these are, she says, uh, Jesus simplified it. Jesus brought it community. Jesus brought it about, made it about apprenticeship and union with God. But uh, we've make we've taken all these shifts throughout history, and not really realized how that's impacted our Where do we think we are now?
2: Making. Where do you think we? Are? Where did she say? Uh, and is there hope that this will?
1: Yeah, I I think I think she said we're sort of impacted by all of it. Like we've got this sort of outcome mentality, which Mm -hmm. is partly why we don't do discipleship, because we don't know what the outcome should be. Um, Or we say, here's my five steps for discipleship. Every church should do this one program for the five steps and Mm -hmm. you'll get the disciple. Um, the individ- Rick
2: Warren's church famously had she, first base, second she base, about base that. And home. actually yep. she said,
1: I love Rick Warren, but let me talk about that. That's yep. not, that's a system. That's mm-hmm. a system of discipleship, kind of like Henry Ford's uh, conveyor belt. Um, And she talked about the now where we are is just very individualistic and very, um, you've heard her say this on the show, uh, the exceptional Christians can make disciples, the best at preaching, the Mm -hmm. best at leading, the best at what have you. So of course there's hope because she's like, this is still Jesus's deal. At the end of the day, this was God's idea. Yes. But we have to bring it back to apprenticeship. We have to bring it back to community. And we have to bring it back to union with God, not just facts, not just information, yes. not just data. I, I'm i very interested in that as a leader mm, of a church. I think
2: so. And just the idea of we're all co- called to be disciples. We are all uh, disciple makers. And I think that that is um, one of the downfalls of, like you said, modernity in the recent mm-hmm. years is like professionalizing the disciple maker. And yeah. that's clearly not... Let's think about the first disciple makers. They were fishermen, tax right. collectors. Right. They were failures. They right. were this and that. It's the Holy Spirit to whom the, you know, the glory goes Absolutely. to. Absolutely. And so uh, this is hard, though. I wonder what it would look like if the pendulum swung hard mm-hmm. in the positive direction. I mm-hmm. wonder. And I know there's lots of people trying. Yeah. But I wonder what it would look like if there was just a big movement towards what is the kind Jesus back way Back
1: to simplicity, back to the Jesus way. The other thing is what Jesse said, I thought was fascinating is we talk about Christ likeness, which of course matters, mm-hmm. but she was like, sometimes what we end up doing is thinking we have to be the leader like Jesus. The question really should be, who did Jesus make you to be? If Jesus was living your life, so mm-hmm. if Jesus had your parents, if Jesus had your job, if Jesus lived in your community, cause let's assume God placed us yes. there. What would discipleship look like through you mm. if Jesus lived your life? Yep. And that's kind of an interesting way to to consider yeah, and foster our disciple making. Why the
2: name ordinary discipleship?
1: Yeah. One of the things that she emphasizes, which I think is so fascinating, is just that like we're all called to make disciples and we're all equipped to make disciples, okay. just exactly as we are. She, she started a sermon at our church on Sunday and said, what if you're fine? Mm. What if the way you are is exactly how God made you and you can make disciples as you are. And it was pretty, it was pretty provocative and pretty profound at the same time. Free That's good. Ultimately. Yeah, that's good. All right. Coming up next. I am so excited because we're talking about looking to the future, looking to the past, looking to the present. What kind of people are we? What does it mean? Does it even matter? We're going to talk about our perspectives on that when we return You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson, alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. So thrilled that you're with us on this Monday evening. Brian, I don't know if you heard this news, and I didn't even really know what I'm about to tell you. Uh, Stephen Furtick, pastor of Elevation Church, Mm -hmm. Mega Church, really popular because of Elevation music and because of his preaching, left the SBC.
2: Yeah, it's been a little while now, but... Uh, My first thought was, I never knew they were part of the SBC. that's what I uh, meant when I said
1: I didn't know this. I didn't know they were part of the SBC either. Apparently, they didn't really make a big deal about it. They just kind of said we're leaving, didn't really say why, lots of speculation about because of, uh, you know, SBC's stance on women and pastoring. Uh, Is this news that matters for the church?
2: So, I mean, after... Saddleback got out and then Elevation. Those are two really big churches. big churches. And I shouldn't say Saddleback got out after they were kicked ex-communic-
1: out. Excommunicate. Not excommunicated. What did they call it? Disenfranchised. Disaffiliated.
2: Disaffiliated. Dis- Def- undefi-
1: they had a. Booted. Had a, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they had a softer term, but uh, yes. <laughs> it
2: is a big deal in the sense of that. Um, I don't know what it necessarily changes because yeah. Stephen Furtick's church. Is a lot of things. I don't think it's traditionally Southern Baptist. <laughs> and
1: so, definitely. Uh, I not. think a lot
2: of people, that was their answer. They went, Oh, they were there?
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> oh, oh. Okay. Uh, but it's more fallout from yeah. the SPC. Like you and I talked weeks ago about them not just making a stand on women as elders or women as senior pastors, but they went, Further, yes. Which may or may not end up standing, but right. they went further with the women can't be any pastor. Yeah. And yeah. That caused churches like Saddleback, like um, Elevation and others to uh, separate. And yeah. the difference with Furtick's church is they decided to separate.
1: Right. Rather than being.
2: Correct. And I don't know what it was in <laughs> the end over, but I would guess it was over all of this. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, it's a big deal just because it's a huge church. But. You know, some people could see, there are probably a lot of Southern Baptists who see it as a positive sign of them making a right decision that Stephen Furtick doesn't feel like he could be under their umbrella. Yeah, yeah,
1: maybe so. You
2: know, to each their own, you know, in the denomination, but... Uh, anytime any church that big makes a decision like that it's a big deal
1: it's an, i think it certainly sends a message whether or not they intended to or not it certainly sends a message to the sbc like hey we're a mega church with quite a bit of influence around the around the country around the world mm-hmm. and we're stepping out like i'll just be cu- i'll be curious if some of this stuff sta- stands over yes. the years that the sbc as more and more churches pull out all right let's switch to a new conversation sort of, can I'm going to try to make a segue here. Christine Kane has spoken at Elevation Church. Okay. She knows Stephen, Kurtick, Stephen, uh, Stephen Furtick, Furtick.
2: Did so, you just combine Stephen Furtick yes. and Stephen Curtis Chapman? That's exactly what
1: just happened. <laughs> wow! Furtick. Stephen uh, Furtick Chapman.
2: What kind of person (laughs) would Stephen Furtick Chapman be? (laughs) What kind of music would come out of Stephen Furtick (laughs) Chapman? I would hear that. I would listen
1: to that album. That would be amazing. Uh, The funny thing is Stephen Curtis Chapman is not on my mind a lot, but that's definitely what just happened. It came
2: out, yes. Wow.
1: Wow. Okay, well, let's move on from that. Uh, Christine Kane. Christine Kane. Thank you. She is, she's got a book that came out a little bit ago about looking forward. In fact, I think it's called don't look back, which is very her. She is, she is a forward thinker. You do not dwell in the past. You move forward. Like that is her build. That is her ministry. That is kind of her makeup. But relevant magazine was interviewing her specifically about moving forward when people are holding you back. So if you've got Mm. like a toxic relationship or, someone you work with is somebody who's holding you back in an unhealthy way. How do you move forward? And one of the questions that they asked her was this, what are some steps we can take to make sure we're looking to the future? Mm -hmm. And I wanted us not necessarily to point out what Chris said. You can read her book if you want to, but does this, are, are you, are you a future oriented person? Are you a past oriented person? Like where do you categorize yourself? Are are you neither? Are you very present? That's
2: a great question. Why, thank you. I'm a
1: professional interviewer.
2: I've told you before, when it comes to vision stuff, I'm not good with future. Mm -hmm. But I also don't know that I hold on to regrets that much.
1: Interesting.
2: Yeah. That's a good question. I I feel like I'm more present. (laughs) I'm like in the present. Yeah. Uh, I guess the question that came to mind for me when you described this is, do you think it's healthy to be as future focused as she is
1: it's a it's a question I've often asked like and it might be because I am not a future oriented person if anything mm. I'm a past oriented person which I don't think is healthy like I have to do the work to learn from the past and then get to the present and be thankful for it so I'm mindful of that just even in my like spiritual okay. practices and things but sometimes I do wonder if this um ultimate intense focus on the future does keep us from learning lessons we need to learn from the past, from dealing healthily with our emotions in the past and our wounds in the past, Mm. and doesn't allow us to be present. So I think there's a place to look to the future, to pray for the future. But you don't want to miss out on what God is doing in the present moment because you're constantly looking to the future. Now, she, in her book, Don't Look Back, is talking about Lot's wife and Lot's wife being called and Lot being called not to look back, right? But I don't know that you make that universal for right. everybody, right? Like there was a certain thing <clears throat> they were called not to look that's back. That's a on. Point.
2: I don't that feels flimsy to me to go, well, lots wife was told not to look back. Okay. There's Yeah. I'm not sure that that's pretty a prescriptive. Prescriptive, prescriptive, yeah. prescriptive. Um So we can get lost in our regret. We get really held down in our regrets, our our missed opportunities, our nostalgia, all this stuff. So I totally get that. Sometimes I do fear, and you know Christine Kane much better than I do, but people who write like she does, sometimes I do feel like there's too much of a new new go what's going what's happening next what's going on yeah and there is something to be said not just of reflection but also dealing with the pains of the past like absolutely and i'm not suggesting that she's against that no
1: no no. she certainly does she writes about her own past quite but i do think
2: that when we are too there is a danger of being too future focused Mm -hmm. both being not present but also my guess is she's more dealing with past versus future right like yeah yeah you could get, you know, it's you could get just too tied to the past of your, like you said, uh, nostalgia is an interesting one. Because usually when we think we're too tied to the past, it's things we didn't do
1: uh, or bad things we did. It's the
2: regrets. It's yeah. the shame. But yeah. it could also be. Man, my f- my church was better back then. Man, I miss the good old days. Man, yeah. I miss this. Like, that's a, that's Man, a different I, deal.
1: I talked to a woman last summer who at an event I was at, and she left her husband because she remembered she was still in love with her high school boyfriend. Oh. And I was like, nope, that's not love. No, was you're not. high school
2: boyfriend still in love with her?
1: Uh, no, high school boyfriend was definitely not in love with her. Definitely not in the picture at all. But she had built up this nostalgia for him so much so that she ended her marriage. And that's an extreme example. But I think that happened right uh, like yep. like we we rekindle old romances even in our minds right or we we have some soul tied to the past and that's a danger Obviously, mm. of looking to the past, mm-hmm. but I think you're right. There's ultra focus on the future. This is why we need community. We need the fu- future-oriented people in our churches and in our lives. We need the past-oriented people in our fu- in our churches and in our lives. We need the present, or like we need all of us to kind of see. Okay, what is God doing? That's what right. is God shaping? How is God calling us? But if you are somebody who needs help moving forward, mm-hmm. maybe because a toxic person is, is is uh holding you back then yeah check out uh chris kane's book I, th- I think it's called don't look back all right coming up next we are joined by dan brensel he's a pastor of first presbyterian church in minnesota Got an interesting book about the life of prayer as a response to god i want mm. to talk to him about that can't wait when we return you're listening to the common good on am 1160 hope for your life everybody welcome back to the common good my name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host Brian from we are joined by pastor of First Presbyterian in Hinckley, Minnesota Dan Brenzel he's got a book called answering speech the life of prayer as a response to God I heard Dan that you're indebted to Eugene Peterson for this title it's so excited to talk to you about it thanks for being here today
3: Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation, and I'm excited to see the book out and love to talk about it. Yeah, we're
1: excited for you. All right, Answering Speech. Tell us a little bit about uh, that title and the reason you wrote this
2: book.
3: Yeah, so um, the main reason, is, um, and as you mentioned, Eugene Peterson is sort of whom I'm indebted to. Uh, He uh, had an interview that I read several years back, and he talks about prayer in it, and he gives a little shorthand definition. He says prayer is answering speech. Um, and his point is that all prayer, um, in truth and at its best, is a response to what God has already done and in is initiating grace and love, um, what He's already spoken in His Word, what He's already um, accomplished for our good in Christ, and what He's doing already in our lives in abundant ways of mercy and goodness. And and any true prayer arises only as a response to that, as an answer to that. And mm. so it was that was just such a hugely helpful, um, just just brief shorthand on on prayer that opened up a. a just a ton of um, understanding, insight, and, 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 um, and uh, ability to enter into prayer more fervently for me. And so really, the book is my attempt to try to expand on that in, in a number of different ways and in a few different avenues that, that, that Peterson perhaps just introduced, but, but I thought could be, could be expanded further.
2: Yeah, that's fascinating. And uh, how did it change your prayer life? How did this perspective shift how you pray, how you view prayer, and uh, just your day-to-day prayer life?
3: Um, sure. I mean, so a couple things that come. Immediately to mind is is one it, it, it really invested a great new significance to scripture as mm. the um, initiating word of God. Uh, I had long heard and 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 was persuaded that that um, it's, it's, it's hard to it's hard to pray enduringly without your Bible open as it were, um, but but to really press into what how do we specifically respond to the word of God? And so the more I uh, was invited to think about that and to and to actively try to pursue that in in relation to how Peterson spoke about prayer. Um, it just kind of revolutionized the, the way I engage scripture. Um, and so, um, I found that most of my life was, um, Christian life was, was, uh, a matter of reading the Bible, closing it and not thinking about it anymore. <laughs> mm. And, um, and so to, to tie so closely and immediately, um, prayer as, as our first fitting response has, has been incredibly helpful. And maybe at another, just more, um, uh, kind of uh, personal, emotional level, um, it began to change how I thought about prayer as, as I'm trying to tug God's arm, twist God's arm into mm-hmm. doing something. I'm trying to initiate something that I need done in my life. Mm-hmm. And and, and that kind of turns on its head Both prayer and reality. Mm -hmm. Uh, The problem is not that I need to get God to do something that I think he's not doing. (laughs) The problem is, in fact, that God is already doing something and I'm not paying attention to it enough, Mm -hmm. as it were. And so Peterson has just this wonderful passage where he says, uh, Most of what I do as a pastor is speak, name the name of God where he's not used to being named and people recognize that he's already there and he's already present in goodness and love and mercy and kindness mm. and it might not resolve all that they think are is problematic in the moment but his presence proves to be enough for the moment mm. and we learn to respond to that yeah. and it's just so it's, 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 it's been revolutionary in that mm. regard for me
1: um, Dan I'm thinking I'm sitting here thinking of you know listeners or friends even myself in seasons where prayer has just kind of been dry mm-hmm. Wrote, but not in a good way, like not in a liturgical way, but in just kind of like, okay, I guess I'll pray. You know, um, talk to mm-hmm. us about that. Like you, you're you writing about having this expansive, exuberant life of response to God. How can we begin to grasp prayer as that instead of just this sort of dry, boring thing we're doing?
3: Yeah, well, what a great question. And, and I appreciate how you make a distinction there there's a way in which rote is not a bad yes thing. <laughs> right um and 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 certainly there are things that we just that that um the illustration i use quite frequently and i use in the book i say i love you to my wife every morning mm. some mornings some mornings i'm not feeling it as much as the other and some mornings believe it or not i don't really mean it as much you know <laughs> right, as, right, and right. And whoever knows um, it's it's not bad that I say it, though. In fact, it's in- eminently good if I understand the, the nature of the relationship and the nature of what it means to be humans in relationship. Well, that's kind of what prayer is, isn't it? Prayer yeah. is mm. in relationship with a real person, the living God of the universe. And so we, we sometimes evaluate prayer um, as kind of these commercial transactions. Like if I didn't hit X, Y, and Z in terms of understanding in terms of emotional fervor then, then it doesn't count yeah uh, but we would never we would never evaluate our human relationships that mean the most to us in that same way mm. absolutely there's a problem if I'm experiencing emotional tension and friction with my wife and I don't mean I love you as much but it's a slightly different kind of problem than I think we're used to trying to evaluate our prayers yeah. uh, by Wow. And so that's that's important, I think, to recognize, and, and that gives us a little sense of we're, we're after, as in many things in the Christian life, we're after a kind of direction through time, not an evaluation of each individual event yeah. of prayer. <clears throat> so that, that can be helpful to, to realize. Yeah, that, that's good. That said, even in a marriage relationship, for example, what you need is not just your own trying to produce the fervency you need accountability mm. you need people speaking into your life you need to be being being prayed for not just praying mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah and so all of that is part of responding to god because god's at work in the world not just in these individual relationships right in yeah. this church community and so that's a crucial part of it as well that's and recognizing good. how your prayer life is in, in wrapped into the praying life of the of the body of christ
2: yeah dan what would you say to the person listening right now who never prays and they're like yeah you know what i'm i'm I need to like just begin. What's step one? How do you, uh, somebody who, how do they go from never praying to start praying? What's that first step Mm, look like? It's good.
3: Yeah. Um, so uh, building off of just what I said there, and, and Peterson, actually, this is the interview that I read. Um, it, it's building off of this um, this insight that prayer is answering speech. His, his response is, and, and, I, and I rather like it, when someone asks me, how do I pray? I say, be at this church at 9 a.m. Sunday morning. <laughs> <laughs> and what he means by that is you don't get started on your own. It's already a life that's started and you get discipled in it. And so that's a crucial part. Yeah. I think we, we sometimes think, well, I got to get started on my own. And, and no, you got to join others who are doing it and walk alongside them. Mm. And so the Lord's Day corporate gathering is the first discipleship in prayer in terms of God's um, uh, design and what he's doing, accomplishing in, in, in Christ and through the body of Christ. And so that's that's a crucial start. I think another one that I would, it's someone, it, hopefully it would be someone that I know and am in relationship with, and and so along kind of similar principle would be, I, let's pray together. I'd love to get together and, 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 and pray with you on some things. So let's do, let's do so right now. Um, and, and then I'd invite them to start reading the Bible mm-hmm. it's, it's and be in response to scripture. And so let's read scripture and let's pay attention to the way that the biblical characters pray. And this wow. can be a way of starting to pray. Mm-hmm. So I think those are all helpful, um, needful things to say, but George McDonald, I think is got a good impulse when he says there's nothing there's no thought or desire so light that that, that God doesn't care about it. Mm. So anything in your heart that inclines you to say something to God, just do it. Get in the habit of that, you know? Yes. Oh,
1: it's so good. We're talking with Pastor Dan Brenzel. He's the author of a book called Answering Speech The Life of Prayer as a Response to God. Dan, where can our people find and follow you and where can they buy this book?
3: Uh (laughs) Um, so if you want to find and follow me, you'll have to move up to Hinkley. <laughs> <We live> in... <laughs> nice. small town of Hinkley, and, and I have been accused of being a hermit at times. So Good for well, you. You're
1: probably we'll a very good there. pastor because yes. of that. <laughs> well done, sir.
3: <laughs> the book itself can be purchased on Crossway's website or um, any any bookseller, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, that type of thing as well. So, But Crossway is, is um, the publisher That's of it. That's so
1: fantastic. Well, thanks so much for being here with us today, Dan.
3: Oh, very welcome thanks for the invitation <laughs> we'll
1: be back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m for brian from i'm aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to the common good on am 1160 hope for your life